Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Carwin Jones. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Law at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He's here to talk about his new book, New Treaty, New Tradition, Reconciling New Zealand and Maori Law, published in 2016 by the University of British Columbia Press. Carwin, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, it's great to have you here. So, Carwin, first off, how did you get interested in Maori law and Maori legal history? Uh, you have kind of a personal connection to these issues, is that right? I do, yeah. So I, I am Māori myself. I'm from uh, a Māori nation called Ngāti Kahununu. Uh, and so partly my interest came from the fact that, uh, you know, this was this, these questions around Māori law, around the reconciliation process, around historical treaties and, and Māori rights were, were sort of part of the conversations that, that I heard uh, in my family. And it was something that, as as I was going through law school, was something that was uh, getting more and more attention. And then there were some important developments through the late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, and, and so it was, it was a, uh, there was some exciting stuff going on during that time. So what is Maori legal history? You say it's not, as most people believe, you know, the, the laws that have or the development of laws that apply to, to the Maori people. It's more than that. Yes, so I think one of the important things to understand about when we're talking about Maori law is that um, Maori, like, like any other society really, uh, ha- have an existing legal system. So, so it, we're not just talking about law which when in, in New Zealand's case, after after sort of contact with Europeans, with the British, uh, there was imposed a system of, of the common law, which came from England. So we're not just talking about those aspects of that legal system, which apply to Māori or affect Māori, but we're actually talking about that system of law that Māori were already using, the, 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 the kind of system that they had for regulating their own society and communities, uh, their social interactions, their economic activity, all of those kinds of things. And even if you know listeners aren't familiar with the specifics of Maori law, I think that you know they'll be they will be familiar with the idea that you know Maori law is influenced by and influences kind of the state law, and then that's kind of common in a lot of jurisdictions, right? Yes, and so we have uh, a number of ways in which. That happens in New Zealand. We see some uh, specific recognition through our legislation or through our statutes. We see the common law has the ability to recognise aspects of Maori custom as law, and that that's the same throughout the, um, the the kind of common law jurisdiction. So we see the same thing in in Canada and the United States and in Australia as well. That that ability to recognise, in particular aspects of indigenous property rights usually. Um, so there are a number of ways in which that happens. And one of the things that we're seeing now in New Zealand is as we're moving through 
a, a, a kind of process of reconciliation and dealing with some of these historical issues uh, that more and that there's becoming an increasing recognition of uh, of Maori law and how that might apply in terms of co-management or co-governance, particularly in the natural resources or environmental law space. What are some of the key elements of Maori law that, that listeners should, should know? One of the key things that I think recurs in the book is that there's all these tensions within uh, you know, Maori law, very productive tensions, but tensions nonetheless. So one of the things that I think is useful to understand about Maori law is that it's very much driven by a sort of key, set of key values, uh, and it, it, it has quite a lot of flexibility and these values uh, sort of interact and they some might be given more emphasis at some point than others. But essentially, you can look to these key values and say, this is, this is what's trying to be achieved when you set up these particular practices or these particular norms or rules or laws that need to be followed. And so some, some of them, the, the kind of really fundamental one is this idea of um, what the, the Māori term for it is, is whanaungatanga, and th- this idea is really about the centrality of relationships in the Māori world, so that really all relationships in the Māori world are sort of understood through a kind of kinship lens, and so that, that includes um, not only your, your actual kin relations amongst your your family and your your extended relations, but also includes relationships with, for example, the natural environment. So those are understood as actual kin relations. And that that then has an impact on on how you engage with the natural world and how you set up systems and policies and laws which regulate that interaction with the natural world as well. So that's a kind of central one. Um, there, There are Others as well, there's very much um, in the Māori world and in Māori law uh, an important sense of of striving towards balance. Um, And so we see the concept of reciprocity being very key in the development of Māori law. And probably one other one to to just to pick out as as a concept, um, which we talk about as mana. And mana is this idea of, uh, it's a kind of authority. And And importantly, it's, it's spiritually sanctioned authority, um, but it is dependent on both both your it, it, it's, some of it is inherited, but it's also dependent on your own actions. And that concept really provides an important um, uh, it empowers Maori leaders, but it also provides important limits and constraints on on the authority of leaders in the Maori world. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit of history. Um, Maybe you can kind of help those of us who don't know that much about it. You know, tell us what is the Treaty of Waitangi and, and why is it so important? Yeah, okay. So the Treaty of Waitangi uh, was signed in 1840, uh, and it's called the Treaty of Waitangi because it was signed at a place called Waitangi, which is uh, in the north of uh, the North Island of New Zealand. And it was signed between initially uh, a grouping of Maori chiefs in the north, and then later copies were taken around the country, and it was signed by by over 500 uh, Maori chiefs um, over the next few months. And the other party to to the Treaty of Waitangi was the uh, the British government or the British Crown, um, signed by uh, uh, 
a, a naval officer, William Hobson, who was sent out here uh, on behalf of Queen Victoria to negotiate this treaty with Maori. Now, what's important about the treaty is that this is what really sets up the basis for uh, the the colonial government to be established in New Zealand. And in doing so, it also provides some important guarantees and protections for Māori. So at the same, it, 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 what it does is it says Māori chiefs will allow this British government to be established, and there's some debate as to what was understood by that, whether that was understood to be government over the entire population of New Zealand or whether this was understood to be just government over the British settlers and the British citizens who were in New Zealand at that time. But at the same time, it provides this, uh, these protections for Māori um, and these quite, quite strong guarantees, actually. And so partly those are, those are phrased as property rights. So Māori are guaranteed to, to enjoy the undisturbed possession of, of their lands and forests and fisheries. Uh, but in the Māori, there's a Māori language uh, text of the treaty. And in that text, the, the kind of key concept that is being guaranteed to Māori is this idea of tino rangatiratanga. Now, tino rangatiratanga comes from the, um, the base word is, is rangatira, which is the Māori word for chief. And tino at the start of that is an intensifier. So it's really talking about guaranteeing all those special qualities of chieftainship or absolute chieftainship, or we might talk about it today as being self-determination. So right from 1840, we have this setup in which uh, public power, if you like, is, is going to be shared between the settler government and the Maori chiefs. Uh, but the, the, as is often the way with these kind of foundational documents, constitutional documents, uh, you don't necessarily have a lot of detail about the specifics of how that's going to work. So you get some key principles but the kind of the precise terms on which that public power is going to be shared actually gets played out uh, over the next, well, um, over the next uh, sort of 177 years now, uh, looking at, at well, what does that relationship mean? And what we've seen, the courts in New Zealand say, is that what it set up was a partnership. And so the key idea really is to think about how to give effect to that partnership between Māori and government. Now, as we get into more recent history, uh, we learn a lot more about the Office of Treaty Settlements, uh, which is within the Ministry of Justice. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and you have some personal experience there as well, right? Yes, so I worked at, at the Office of Treaty Settlements, uh, and I also worked at, a, at a, an, another part of the Ministry of Justice called the Waitangi Tribunal, and, and these two two agencies are connected in the sense that the Waitangi Tribunal was set up uh, originally in 1975 to hear claims from Māori based on the Treaty of Waitangi. So claims that, that in fact, the principles of the treaty had been breached. And the, the Waitangi Tribunal is is a, a sort of like a it's a quasi judicial body, so it's a commission of inquiry. It's intended to be independent. It has um, its membership is is uh, roughly 
50% Māori, 50% non-Māori. It has a mix of judges, lawyers, historians, uh, people who are, are, are skilled in, in Māori uh, language, culture and practices as well, all, all make up the membership of that tribunal. And so the tribunal hears claims and reports to government on those claims, and it can make recommendations uh, about what needs to happen, either to to provide some uh, some compensation or some some recompense for for breaches that have occurred, um, or it can make recommendations to government in order to prevent further prejudice occurring because of, of breaches of the treaty. Now, the, the Waitangi Tribunal just only makes recommendations, and they're, they're non-binding. So the government can decide whether to uh, adopt those recommendations or not. Now, what happened in the mid-1990s was that this other body, the Office of Treaty Settlements, gets set up in order to negotiate the uh, direct, directly negotiate settlements with uh, particular Māori communities. So Māori community might have a whole lot of historical claims which might relate to land alienation or land confiscation or natural resources or a whole lot of other issues. And the Office of Treaty Settlements uh, will come in and uh, engage in negotiation with them to, to come up with a settlement package. Uh, and so that, that's the process that, um, in the case of these historical claims, that has really been, well, is really now being led by the Office of Treaty Settlements. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question, Carmen, before I let you go. You say at the end of the book that many more stories of Maori legal traditions remain to be told. Uh, what what needs to happen for those stories to to be able to be told? Well, I think one of the key things is to that that we do recognise that what we're talking about is is law and a legal system, and that it is is based on the all the kinds of things that we expect from uh, a kind of sophisticated legal system, and that means that it's not frozen in time, that it, it's dynamic, and that it adjusts to meet the needs of the community. And so, I think that's a really important part of that. It's also an important part of of engaging with with the state legal system, so that the state legal system understands that that what is happening here is that we're engaging two different legal systems. It's it's not one legal system trying to adapt um, a particular cultural practice, but rather a cultural practice that that is embedded in in a whole social system, including a legal system as well. And so I think that's really important. And, 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 you know, there's there's work, I think, that Māori communities can be doing to to reinvigorate those to to ensure that those stories are being told and to ensure that that we're using them in a way that that regulates our own conduct and that we are using them as law as well. Carwin, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's legal scholar Carwin Jones. His new book is New Treaty, New Tradition: Reconciling New Zealand and Maori Law, published in 2016 by the University of British Columbia Press. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>